Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. I'm your host, Nick. I run this show and the YouTube channel called The Linux Experiment. And this week, we have a bunch of stuff to cover in terms of Linux and open source news. First, we have the release of the Zorin OS 17 beta, with the final version coming relatively soon as well. We also have Linux Mint 21.3 coming, we have an enormous security vulnerability that affects most, if not all, Windows and Linux systems. We have updates to systemd, which brings the blue screen of death to Linux. We have your ability to vote on OpenSUSE's new logo and a bunch of other things. So as always, all the links and the articles I use to create this show are in the show notes if you want to deep dive into any of this. And if you want to support this podcast, there are plenty of links in the show notes as well. So let's get started. So let's begin with Zorin OS 17 beta. If you don't know about Zorin, it's one of the most user-friendly, user-focused distributions. It's based on Ubuntu LTS, generally with a pretty old base. And I would say the previous version, Zorin OS 16, was probably too old as a base for most people. But Zorin OS 17 Beta introduces a lot of cool stuff, which might make it regain its spot as the distro I would recommend to beginners. So, what they bring this time? They're still based on Ubuntu 22.04. As far as I know, that was also the case for Zorin OS 16, but maybe it was 20.04 on Zorin OS 16. Um, so it brings this new base, but it also upgrades the GNOME version of Ubuntu to GNOME 43 instead of sticking to GNOME 42, which is what Ubuntu 22.04 brought. It also embarks a bunch of cool improvements. The first one is what they call a spatial desktop, which is basically just the good old 3D cube effect to switch between virtual desktops. But they also added a parallax effect on top uh, for the windows to float above it. It looks really, really cool. It's not a huge usability improvement compared to a regular strip of desktops. It's a sort of an optional feature that looks cool, that will wow your friends and that you might find fun. It's not extremely usability focused, but it's nice looking. They also replaced the Alt-Tab switcher with a 3D switcher, which, in my opinion, isn't as good as a basic Alt-Tab switcher. It's more flashy, but you also see less, uh, so I'm not sure it's all that great. But both features can be turned off in the Appearance Settings. OrinOS has its own little Appearance Settings app, and you can turn these off if you don't like them, if you feel that they might use too many resources. You can disable that. They also moved to GNOME 43, so they have access now to GNOME's horizontal desktop strip, because previously they used a way older version of GNOME that still had the horizontal desktop strip. Uh, they also have all the touchpad gestures that GNOME brought to use those virtual desktops and the activity view and the apps grid properly with a laptop and a touchpad. And they also improved window tiling, much like what Ubuntu did in 23.10. You can now enable quarter tiling, so you can drag a window to a corner of the screen, or you can use uh, keyboard shortcuts to tile your windows to various quarters. And apparently you can also create your own tiling layouts, although this seems experimental, so maybe you'll lose your windows position at some point. But it's still pretty interesting, because it brings more power to the basic desktop. 
Uh, they also gained the quick settings menu from GNOME, of course, and all the power modes that GNOME added, and the new screenshot and screen recording tools, the improvements to performance and responsiveness, all the stuff that GNOME brought, the new software store, the, the new GNOME software store, basically all the things that Zorin OS were missing on Zorin OS 16, they gained them. It's unfortunate that they didn't try and fit GNOME 45 on top of that, so you would at least have the very latest version. But since they built their own set of tools on top of GNOME, maybe they just didn't have time to adapt them, because uh, you have an automatic layout switcher in Zorin, uh, which this time brings two new layouts as well. Basically, you have a little app with various layouts you can click on, and once you click on one, it changes your whole desktop configuration to look like, for example, Unity or Windows or Mac OS, and now you can also make it look like Chrome OS or GNOME 2. You have plenty of options, and it's really user-friendly, because if you're coming from another OS, having something that is relatively familiar might be a plus. Some people might consider it a detriment, because it looks like what you're used to, but it doesn't exactly work like what you're used to, but I think it still makes the transition way easier than having to replicate that layout yourself on an OS and a desktop you don't know yet. Now, uh, Zorin OS 17 also reduces the bloat, because that's an argument a lot of people make against it, that it shipped way too many things. Uh, so they won't pre-install the to-do app, they won't pre-install GNOME maps anymore, they remove the games. Uh, and they also reworked their theme to work better with GTK4 apps and LibAdvita apps, at least those that ship uh, as packages. And it moves to the Linux kernel 6.2, which is sort of not great because 6.6 .6 is already out and is an LTS version. So it has plenty of performance improvements, plenty of improved drivers. It would probably have been better to use 6.6 .6 than 6.2, but yeah, you still get a lot of improvement. If you were a Zorin OS 16 user, Zorin OS 17 will absolutely be a no-brainer upgrade, and if you weren't using Zorin OS, or if you're not a Linux user, I would say wait for the final release of 17, because it might be a pretty interesting one, and I think it's one of the easiest distros to get started with. They add a bunch of cool small tools, uh, you get like a KD Connect or GS Connect uh, pre-installed, so you can connect your phone to your desktop. You get a barrier tool uh, to to interact with your with multiple devices. Uh, you get a Wine pre-installed if you want to install Windows apps or games. It, it's not a bad distro at all. It just uses a pretty old base, but it's no longer such an issue because it does support Flatpak. I think Flathub and Flatpak are enabled out of the box, which means you can still get the latest versions of apps without having to rely on what's on the repo, so the older base doesn't matter all that much, apart from the kernel and the hardware support it brings. And since we're talking about user-friendly distributions, we also have news about Mint 21.3. Apparently the images are in the quality assessment phase, which means the beta should land sometime either this week or next week. Uh, depending on when you listen to this, the beta might already be out. It is a minor upgrade, it is a smaller upgrade than 21.2 was, but it still brings some interesting things, and the big one is the first experimental Wayland support. Linux Mint and its Cinnamon desktop did not have any Wayland support at all, at least none that was available to the user. You were stuck on X11, which meant it was okay for a lot of people, but if you loved one-to-one uh, -one smooth touchpad gestures, if you liked having better battery life, better responsiveness, 
and just using something modern and not riddled with security vulnerabilities, then you were kinda stuck. Uh, now they do have this experimental support in Mint 21.3, although it is experimental support, so don't expect everything to be super smooth, to work all the time, it's just the first steps. They don't expect this to replace x.org or x11 soon or, or maybe at all in the future, but they will start accepting bug reports. They actually opened a dedicated GitHub repo to gather all the Wayland-related problems, whether they're for a Mint app, for the Cinnamon desktop, or for the distro itself. On top of that, you can expect a few minor improvements. Uh, the file manager, uh, which already supported actions, so additional entries in your context menu when you right-click a file, you could add those, but you had to install specific packages and you had to know which packages contained which actions. Now they will handle this much more like they handle uh, applets, desklets, extensions, and themes, which means you have this sort of community repo uh, and, and ability to install those manually and remove them and rate them, which is pretty cool. So you will be able to extend uh, the features of the file manager yourself, which is pretty nice. Other minor changes include Hypnotics, which is their sort of TV video, online video viewer. Uh, it gains the ability to favorite channels, to create custom channels from live streams, for example. And there are also a few fixes and improvements to the login screen, to their batch renaming tool, and to the image and video viewer called Pix. Now, this is probably not enough for me to make a dedicated video about, but I might go for a battle of the beginner-friendly distros video comparing Mint and Zorin OS 17. Uh, so maybe new users might have an idea which one to pick between Zorin OS 17 and Mint 21.3. It might be an interesting video. Uh, so if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel and you want to see that, uh, go over to YouTube, search for the Linux experiment and subscribe to that and you'll get all the videos published when they come out. Now, if, like me, you think that the current AI craze sucks, but that if it has to exist, then it has to be open source, then you might be happy to see that there's now something called the AI Alliance. And it's some kind of mega AI foundation backed by most important companies in the tech sector. There's AMD, there's Intel, there's Sony, there's Red Hat, there's IBM, Oracle, the Linux Foundation, uh, the University of Berkeley, which created BSD, uh, there's Dell, there's Stability AI, uh, the Research Center CERN, uh, there's a lot, a lot of various companies, universities, and entities backing and joining this foundation. Now, their goal is to develop benchmarks and evaluation standards to make sure that AI work is coherent, doesn't hallucinate too much, works properly, doesn't give too much misinformation, and generally just is a good experience that won't destroy society. They also want to create open models. They want to work on providing AI hardware accelerators, which is probably why AMD, Sony, Intel, and the likes are in there. Well, maybe not Sony, they don't make like CPUs and stuff. Uh, maybe this is why those companies are joining as well. Generally, it's just a new foundation to support AI development in the open. It will be international, and they seem to want to focus on creating models that have an actual practical use case to solve big issues. Uh, they want to tackle climate, education, and more by using AI models, which I think is one of the more reasonable uses of AI, because Creating images, like, it's fun. Generating text and, and compacting answers, why not? But it's not going to change the world. 
applying those models to big reflections like climate change, like the progression of, I don't know, deforestation, or, or like the progress of education and how it can increase and improve the life of people, or I don't know, modeling how like drinkable water will evolve over the years. It's interesting and it's important. And this is where AI can really bring something because it can process much more data than a group of scientists would as soon as the model is written. It doesn't mean that it's going to be a, a giant world-changing, world-saving thing, but it can definitely help draw some conclusions and have a more mathematical and factual basis, which is, I think, where AI really would be interesting instead of replacing a search engine, which already did its job really well and you really don't need an AI to, like pre-spit you some information and creating graphics like yeah it's cool it opens creativity but there are so many copyright related issues with that that i don't think it's ready at all so i think it's interesting i'm pretty sure a lot of people will find fault with a bunch of members of this organization it might just come out to nothing because as with any big board and foundation it doesn't mean that it's going to create anything or be like respected in any way and it really doesn't alleviate any concerns uh, that I have with AI and how it's being forced march currently without any care for where the data comes from or the societal impacts it might have. But at least if there can be a consensus on operating AI work in the open, at least when these things actually start being useful, no one will be left behind, which is probably best for the world in general. Now, this one will probably give some ammo to people who think Linux is turning into Windows or, or whatever else, because Systemd got a new update. Systemd being basically the software that most distros use to actually start your Linux operating system, starting all the services and making sure you can actually use your system. What they bring in version 255 is the ability to display a blue screen of death when the system fails to boot just like in Windows. This new component is called systemd BSOD for blue screen of death, and it will now display emergency log messages in full screen when there's a big failure during the boot sequence. So users will be able to understand the error better, it won't be drowned in a bunch of white lines of text that are completely cryptic, and it will also provide a QR code as well, so users can scan that and get more information about the problem, and maybe try to find a solution. Now that's not all for this update, there's also storage TM, which is a new component, that exposes all your storage devices for other computers to access if you boot in this specific mode. It is similar to what macOS provides in target mode, which means you could access all the storage of one computer from another, even if it fails to boot a graphical interface. So you can actually fix a system or grab some data. It's pretty interesting. They also added VM spawn, which is a new tool that lets you spawn virtual machines in the same way as systemd could already spawn containers. It uses QMU, but it is still considered experimental, so don't use it for production work. And importantly, they also deprecated support for System V or System 5 service scripts. Uh, this is something that System D had. It was compatible with like this older init system, and no, and now it's deprecated, so it's no longer officially supported, and it will be removed in a later version. Which means that if you had such scripts that you just added to systemd, you will have to rewrite them into systemd services, which is really not that hard to do, honestly. So 
I get it. People don't want Linux to turn into Windows. I don't want Linux to turn into Windows. But if we're honest, the blue screen of death is only hated because it popped up so often during a certain period uh, of Windows's history, like in XP, in Vista, and at the start of 7, you had blue screens of death all the time. I think Windows 8 also had a lot of those. Uh, for Windows 10 and Windows 11, don't really have these many issues with that. And people only hate this screen because it represents a problem. But in terms of concept, it's not bad. Like, you should probably want a better laid out error message that looks a bit more user-friendly and gives you a way to try and fix the issue instead of being stuck on a, like, blinking cursor that displays nothing or a bunch of lines of white text on a black background that you have no idea represents and you don't even know that there's been an error. Like, your system might just be stuck, you don't know. So, a blue screen of death-like interface is more user-friendly it just needs to happen very, very rarely uh, for users to not be mad at it. Now let's talk about system security. And there's a new, unfortunate, well new, it's not new, but it's been discovered and exploited recently. Uh, it's a new vulnerability that affects basically every Windows and Linux user. It's dubbed logo fail. And it's not just one flaw, it's more of a combination of two dozen different flaws and vulnerabilities and exploits that have been there for a long while in a lot of UEFI implementations. And they're applicable to AMI, to Inside and Phoenix, which are three independent BIOS or UEFI interface providers for manufacturers to apply so they don't have to develop their own interface. Uh, but it's also applicable to computers from Lenovo, from Dell, from HP, and also to a bunch of CPUs from Intel, AMD, and a lot of ARM-based CPUs as well. And the way this thing works is by using the step where the manufacturer or, or BIOS manufacturer displays a logo at boot. When you boot your computer, you will often see the logo for your, for example, motherboard manufacturer or your computer manufacturer with a little OS logo at the bottom, like the little Windows spinner or, or the name of your distro or something. And at that step, they will replace that logo with a similar looking one, but with some malicious code added on top of that. Uh, so when the system starts up and the bootable image is started, you won't notice a difference because it's still the same logo as usual, but it will actually run something in the background. And since at that step, everything is virtually unlocked, it bypasses any sort of system security and it can access the whole disk, the memory and the OS that will actually be started. This means that with this set of vulnerabilities, attackers can virtually launch anything they want before the OS even boots. They can modify anything they want, they can add stuff on top of your OS, and it can be exploited remotely as well. And it can be started, like this image replacement can be done without even storing any executable code on the hard drive, meaning that the attack itself is very hard to detect with an antivirus. And once the logo image has been replaced, then you have some code in your firmware, where, where your firmware is stored, that is malicious, but that is also very hard to detect. And even an OS reinstall won't fix the issue because the code isn't on the partition that your OS will erase. It's at the firmware step, which means that this thing will only be erased if you reflash your firmware. So basically, when you get a firmware update or a UEFI update from your manufacturer, whether you're using LVFS on Linux or any other tool on any other OS like, like Windows, for example, install it, 
as soon as possible to protect yourself. Uh, this thing is going to be very tricky to fight once it's on your hardware. You will have to apply a UEFI update or to reflash everything. So if you get an update before that, apply it. If you were already infected, at least it's now erased. And if you weren't infected, you will be better protected against that. It's a very nasty thing. And it's been there for apparently a very long time, just not really exploited. So yeah, it kind of sucks. Now, more friendly, less worrying news. Uh, if you're interested in OpenSUSE and its branding, you can now vote on its new logo. Uh, you have until the 12th of December to do that. Uh, the distro previously invited the community to submit a bunch of designs to replace their sort of aging branding uh, with this green chameleon and, and, and just OpenSUSE written at the bottom of it. Uh, they, they want to differentiate themselves better from the commercial offering of SUSE Linux. And they also wanted to have something more in line with the various brandings for the various uh, different distros that they offer, like Tumbleweed, Slowro, Leap. They wanted to have more coherent branding. So they asked the community to submit a bunch of designs, and now you get to pick the one you want to see become the official logo for the distro. Now, fair warning, uh, it is a relatively lengthy process if you want to rank all the submissions, because you'll have to rank the submissions for OpenSUSE as a brand, you have to rank the submissions for Leap, for Tumbleweed, for Slow Roll, and for, I think it's Scala, which is like the KDE version. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work if you want to rank all the submissions. You can just rank the three you prefer, but if you want, you can rank all of them. And don't worry if you love the little chameleon, the green chameleon, Basically, all designs are inspired from this chameleon, either very stylized or very, let's call it skeuomorphic, but maybe more like real, a real representation of a chameleon. Some look like logos from the, the 80s or the 90s. Uh, some look super modern. Some look straight up like a copy of the Mint logo, if I'm honest. They, they, they're all relatively interesting. They won't depart, honestly, all that much from the current branding. They're all pretty much green, uh, like, like the current one. It's just a stylized version of the chameleon or a less stylized version of the chameleon. There were a few ones that I thought that I thought were pretty cool. I voted on them uh, and you can now vote yourself. Just pick the ones you prefer for every variant of the distro and just know that once it's decided upon, it won't just happen all at once. They will slowly phase out the old one and replace the new one because depending on what they pick, they probably also will have some web dev work on their websites. Uh, because the, the ratio of the image probably won't be the same. So maybe in a header, it won't fit all the same. It might move some elements around. So they won't just replace it all at once in one day. It will happen slowly, but it will at least make the brand more unified and maybe look a bit more modern because while this little chameleon right now is pretty cute, the, the logo really doesn't scream like, hey, I'm a super professional tool and I have plenty of config systems that other distros don't have. I, it, it doesn't it doesn't scream professional to me. So maybe something more stylized would be better, but maybe that's just me liking like less skeuomorphic, less realistic designs. Now, we also got a bit of information on why fingerprint and face unlock sort of sucks on Linux compared to, for example, what you might find on Mac OS. Uh, for example, if you use GNOME and you have a device that has a fingerprint reader, you know that you can unlock your session by using your fingerprint. So when you're at the login stage, you just place your finger on your fingerprint reader and it unlocks. But after that, it's gonna still ask you for your password to unlock the keyring. Uh, so you will have to type your password anyway, or maybe to rescan your fingerprint again. Uh, this sort of makes using your fingerprint less efficient 
than just typing your password uh, because well you have two steps instead of one and it sort of defeats the point because fingerprint is mostly there to be easier uh, it's also it can also be more secure but at its core it's just it's faster the same thing happens if you use something like face unlock uh, using for example howdy uh, it will unlock your session but it won't unlock your keyring and I didn't know why that was, but it was sort of annoying. Now I know why that is, because there's been an article explaining it. Uh, apparently fPrint, which is the library used to interact with fingerprint readers, can only tell if the fingerprint that you scanned matches what is stored or not. There is no secure enclave that could store all the secrets, all the passwords basically needed to unlock the computer and the keyring. Which means that if you wanted to have your fingerprint unlock everything, the session and the keyring, you would have to store the password associated with the keyring on the disk for it to unlock automatically. Something that is obviously really not secure at all because anyone with access to your disk could just grab the password to your keyring and then get all your other passwords. So... It looks like for now, if you compare it to macOS, where there is a secure enclave, which stores all the secrets, and so when you unlock your fingerprint, it communicates with that enclave, it reveals the secret that is needed by the app, and it unlocks that app or that keyring. Uh, on Linux, we can't do that, and we also don't have uh, the ability to use the TPM chip either, because there is no direct communication between the fingerprint reader and the TPM chip meaning that the, the unlock, the, the fingerprint information, has to transit through the OS itself, which defeats the purpose because, once again, uh, you do have to store the password, uh, you have to transmit the password for the curing uh, to the OS, which is not secure either. So it's, it will be interesting to see if we can fix that issue at some point, uh, but it's clear that there are some advantages to owning both the hardware and the software side of things. I don't know how Windows does it. Uh, do they have a keyring and do they unlock that automatically when you use, like, for example, Windows Hello with face unlock or fingerprint? I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, for, for now on Linux at least, uh, our biometric unlock systems will remain less efficient than on other operating systems. Now, if you're a GNOME user, there are some cool updates coming soon, including a big one to fix how text and icons scale, especially when using the accessibility option that scales the text. If you don't know, in GNOME, if you don't want to use fractional scaling, but you just want things to be a little bit bigger, or if you have, like, uh, vision impairments, you can increase the size of the text, the font size. Uh, you go to accessibility settings, and you have a large text setting and a font scaling factor that you can define. But this thing only scaled certain parts of the text, not everything everywhere. Some buttons, some icons weren't scaled alongside it, so it, it made some text more legible, but it didn't make the whole desktop more legible. And some things could be a little bit broken or not have the right padding. It, it, it wasn't right. Uh, they now fixed that because they added conversion functions to turn uh, pixels and points into EM, which is a more neutral way of calculating font sizes. And they changed how padding works, so it can scale properly as well. So buttons will get the right size for the size of the text inside. They will also scale icons and assets alongside that text, and the buttons in the panel, so for example the quick settings, will also scale to support these changes. So this means that 
If fractional scaling is a problem for you because, I don't know, it slows down your computer or it uses too much battery or it just doesn't work properly on, on the apps you want, you can just go to accessibility settings. Well, you will be able to do that once the update is published uh, in a new GNOME version. Uh, you will be able to increase the font size. Just go to accessibility settings, enable the large text thing, uh, scale your fonts by a factor of 10%, 25%, and you will get basically the exact same result as fractional scaling in any app that supports font scaling. And that's probably a bigger subset than the apps that actually do scale well with fractional scaling, because a lot of apps don't follow your fractional scaling setting if they are not from the same toolkit, but they will follow the font uh, size changes, which might be better for some use cases. So this is going to be interesting. I think that's the way Elementary OS also went. Instead of working on fractional scaling, they work on making just font scaling scale everything. So you don't need to do fractional scaling on everything. You can just scale the fonts and everything else, buttons, window buttons, text icons, will scale alongside it. And it's just more supported and it works better and it doesn't use more battery and it's not blurry. It's a better way of doing it if you can do it properly. Now, on top of that, there was also a minor update to GNOME, version 45.2, and this one fixes performance issues. It brings better tablet support for X11, I'm assuming graphics tablet support, and better on-screen keyboard support as well. Uh, there were also some small updates to the image viewer, the file manager, and the archive manager, and they also improved the portals implementation. Uh, it now supports sending remote file URIs and the calendar is now exposed through the settings portal as well, which might make it easier to actually change calendar events or view your calendar events from other applications. Uh, so a few small improvements, you will get them automatically from your distro if you're a GNOME user and you're already on GNOME 45. This scaling thing is interesting and I will follow that closely to see when it actually releases, because it feels like it might be a really solid alternative to fractional scaling. Now, I happened upon a blog post analyzing uh, the, the Firefox situation and its general decline and how it might accelerate quite fast now. Uh, there's something called the US Web Design System. It's a United States-ran governmental body that defines standards to build the US government's website. So they basically have their own standards governing thing that lets them define how they want to build the, the websites for the US government and what they want to support in there and, and what they actually allow themselves to use and the feature that they don't want to use because they're not supported well enough. They base all of these standards on the market share of various browsers. And judging from, uh, well, the market share, the traffic that comes to their US government's website uh, from various web browsers. And it looks like right now Firefox is 2.2% of this traffic. And it looks like the cutoff for them for a supported browser might be around 2%. So it might end up causing the US web design system to just say, we're not going to support Firefox anymore because virtually no one uses that to visit our websites. And at that point, it might also send some sort of signal to other companies that, you know what, why bother supporting Firefox? Uh, and that's something a lot of companies have already have uh, as a mindset. Why would you spend hours testing and fixing your web app or your website on Firefox if virtually everyone uses either Safari Mobile, something Chromium-based, or, or Samsung Internet? 
No reason to spend so much time fixing and working on another browser if it's like 5 or 6% market share. Uh, I'm, I know for certain that we dropped Internet Explorer at all the companies I worked with when it was around 10 to 12%. Uh, so Firefox at 6 or 7, if it's, I think it's about what it has globally right now if you look at, uh, at some various uh, like benchmarks and, and, and market share reporting tools. It's around 6 or 7% globally in the whole world, including mobile, which is really, really bad. And that, that might be bad enough that a lot of companies will just say, you know what, we won't support that. And if the US government's website themselves say, you know what, we don't want that, a lot of US companies might say, yeah, we don't want that either. And since a lot of the world uses what US companies build, uh, then a lot of the world might be impacted as well. And this is a big problem because Firefox is pretty much the default browser that most Linux distributions ship by default. Apparently it doesn't mean that all Linux users keep using it because it doesn't have that big of a market share, but also Linux doesn't have that big of a market share on the desktop if we're honest. But yeah, if Firefox is getting dropped left and right, then it means that the default browser we ship on Linux might just provide a subpar experience and Mozilla cannot individually just add fixes for various websites so they fix the issue in the rendering engine instead of the website fixing the issue of not supporting the standards correctly. It's a big problem and it means that either Linux distros will at some point have to provide another browser which will absolutely be Chromium based because there are no other real alternatives right now and that sucks because Chromium, while it's open source, is also very much a Google project and they very much decide what goes in or not, which means basically giving full control of the internet to Google, which is something we should probably not do. Or it means that Linux distros by default will provide a subpar experience and users will have one extra step each time to install something else uh, to replace Firefox, which will not work properly. As someone who worked for like 12 years uh, as a product owner, at the end of my, my career on that front, uh, it was two years ago, we already had decided that Firefox would not be supported. Like I was in charge of testing our web app and website and, and designing it and making sure that developers followed the specifications. And Firefox was already abandoned because our website was visited like it was 60%. It's, it was a web app. It was 60% Safari or 70% Safari and 30% Chrome. And like maybe, well, around that and one or 2% the rest. Firefox didn't even exist at all in our statistics. I think it was like 1 or 1.5%. So we abandoned it. We stopped supporting it and we didn't test it at all. Even though it was the browser I used personally on my system, I ran Linux at that company. I ran Firefox for everything. But every time I wanted to use our website or test it, I opened Chromium and I opened Gnome Web of all things because it had the exact same rendering engine as Safari and I could reliably reproduce every single Safari bug in uh, Gnome Web as well, which was pretty handy to have, if I might add. So yeah, Firefox was already abandoned and we are a French company. Uh, we are not even like a big giant US company. So us doing that didn't affect much, but if it's Google or YouTube saying, you know what, we won't support Firefox anymore because 5% market share, we, we can't really be accused of, of not being fair to our competition because at that point it's not competition, it's an also ran and you can't force us to support it. They will support the 
other browsers. Like they they will say we support Edge, we support Safari, but we don't support Firefox because it's too small. It's not anti-competitive, and they would probably win that argument. Uh, if YouTube, if Gmail already completely stopped supporting Firefox and have really weird implementations and bugs, like they sometimes introduce that themselves voluntarily, they've been known for doing that, then Firefox is dead. Because if you can't watch YouTube on it, if you can't access your email on it, then you might as well change browsers. It, it, it's just not a good experience. It's a big problem for the neutrality of the web. It's a big problem for the diversity of rendering engines. And I have no idea how it can be fixed. I don't think it can now. And it's pretty sad. So, renting on Firefox aside, it's now time for the gaming news. Uh, first, we have an interesting performance and power consumption look uh, for the Steam Deck OLED. It's from Foronix. So, if you were wondering if it was worth the upgrade, if you already own a Steam Deck and you were pondering the upgrade to the Steam Deck OLED, uh, these numbers might help. In terms of performance, you can't expect a huge difference. You'll be able to grab a few FPS here and there, but it won't turn a 30 FPS game into a 40 FPS game. It won't turn a 40 FPS game into a 60 FPS game. That's a good thing, I think, because it means that you won't have the old LCD deck being completely abandoned by developers. It's probably a good thing, but yeah, you will not gain much performance. It will just provide a smoother experience in certain titles, but not by much. In terms of battery life, though, you're gonna gain from one to four hours, depending on what you're playing. And that's also paired with a better display, with a better refresh rate, and with improved inputs on the device. So if what you're looking for is performance, then the Steam Deck OLED will not change a thing for you. But if you felt that the LCD deck didn't have enough battery life for your needs, if you like playing big AAA titles and two hours or three hours isn't enough for your gaming sessions, uh, I don't know if you have like a two-hour commute every day, back and forth, like four hours commute, maybe your Steam Deck isn't strong enough to handle that. Well, the OLED will probably be, which is interesting. For me personally, it's not enough. I will not be upgraded. The LCD deck is more than enough for me. I very rarely take it outside of my house. I don't play all that much on it. I just cannot justify the expense. I think that someone who really uses their current LCD deck for intensive AAA titles on the go will probably benefit from the upgrade if they have the cash lying around. And if you don't have a Steam Deck but you want to buy one, you go for the OLED. There's no question about it. Don't buy the entry-level LCD deck. Spend like the $50 or $100 more and buy the OLED model. It will have a longer shelf life. It will have better battery life. A little bit more smoothness, a way better screen. Like, don't hesitate. Like, do yourself a favor. Buy the OLED one. Don't buy the LCD one. I think that's the better choice here. Now, still speaking on the Steam Deck, we have some improvements coming to SteamOS. Uh, they released the 3.5.8 and then 3.5.9 preview updates, and they focused on frame pacing, which means that you have games that don't necessarily have the same experience when they're running at 30 FPS, for example, because frame pacing might be terrible, which means you can switch very regularly from 29 to 30 to 31 to 29 to 31, and it makes the game feel jittery, and not smooth. Uh, that's something I experienced myself when playing Bloodborne on PS5. The gameplay is locked at 30 FPS because it's a it's a PS4 game that ran at 30 FPS. They never updated it for PS5, so it runs at 30. 
but it's a terrible 30 FPS. It stutters all the time, it's really not smooth, and after an hour I had a giant headache and I was actually nauseous. It was unplayable, really bad. Compare that to the Final Fantasy VII Remake, where I played the PS4 version on a PS5, this one is also locked at 30 FPS. But it's a super smooth 30, it never stutters, it never misses a frame. Which means that while at the start of the game you're like, oh, it's not 60, that's not good, after an hour you don't notice it at all because the frame rate is super smooth. So fixing that on SteamOS and the Steam Deck to make sure that when you're at 30 FPS, you're actually at 30 FPS and not flickering between 29 and 30 all the time, it means that the gameplay will be much, much smoother and it will reduce a lot of starters in games, which is really nice. Now, these preview updates also bring a few improvements, notably fixing the incorrect GPU clock speed that were reported in the overlay, but it's mostly minor bug fixes alongside that. And finally, we have an update to Wine, uh, Wine version 8.22, and this one adds even more Wayland support. It adds mouse lock support and relative motion events, which were the things that were missing from the previous version, uh, which meant that FPS games were unplayable with Wine on Wayland because you couldn't use the mouse to look around. Uh, now you can with this new version, which means that from what I gather, the, the Wayland driver for Wine is basically complete. It runs Vulkan titles, it supports mouse input, mouse look, resizing the window, full screen, everything. It looks like it's complete. There might be a bunch of bugs to fix, a bunch of performance improvements or regressions here and there, but, well, performance improvements to be added uh, and performance regressions to be fixed, but it looks like it's pretty much complete, which means that probably in 2024 with Wine 9.0 and, and the further Wine 9 series updates, we might be able to actually play games natively with Wine and Proton on Wayland, which will result in better performance than playing games using X Wayland, but it will also result in better performance than playing games on X11 as well, once everything is all set up and done, because there were already some comparisons for some titles running natively using Wayland, and they perform much better than on X11, because Wayland is way less heavy than X11 to use, and is just better integrated with your graphical hardware. So, yeah, really, really cool. We might be able to squeeze a few FPS here and there in our games, and that's pretty neat. And it's also a big barrier to the adoption of Wayland that might be lifted. So really, really nice stuff here. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, I left links to them in the show notes. You have all the articles I used. If you want to support the show to keep it going, you also have plenty of links in the show notes. Don't hesitate to do that. Starting in January, I will be doing a daily, very short uh, podcast for all the daily news. So if you don't really like this form factor of uh, this format of 40 to 45 minutes once a week and you want like five, six minute long episodes every day for your commute, for example, or when you're starting your day, then you will get that starting in January if you subscribe to the Patreon page for the podcast. Uh, any subscriber tier will get that uh, starting at one euro every morning. Well, morning in France, depending on where you live, it might be like the night of the previous day or the end of the day you will get a brand new episode, five, six, maybe 10 minutes tops on Mondays. You will get episodes from Monday to Saturday, probably not on Sunday. 
uh, every day. So if you like this kind of stuff, and if you want to be like up to date every single day with a very short digestible podcast, uh, you can already subscribe to the Patreon and starting in January, you will get all of this. So thank you all for watching. And as always, I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.